0: Coming up on this week's show, an arcade legend is leaving the industry after 50 years.
1: Is Castlevania coming back to the Amiga? And we catch up with Cygnosis legend Ian Green. <laughs>
0: The Retro Hour podcast is brought to you each and every week with our amazing friends at Bitmap Books. Now, one of their books you should definitely check out is Super Nintendo and Super Famicom, a visual compendium, where you can rediscover the video games of the SNES era with this gorgeous compendium. Check that out and the rest of their amazing retro gaming books on their website at bitmapbooks.co.uk. Hello, and welcome to the Retro Hour Podcast, episode number 312. Your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood, me, Ravi Abbott, and me, Joe Fox. And a very, well, a slightly warmer welcome to this week's show, being that it is now February. And the weather is starting to get a bit warmer. Our first show of <laughs> the new month—it gets freezing in February. You're going to be like, yeah. "I was going to say, <laughs> you were literally street.
2: just complaining that you can see your breath
0: in your office. <laughs> that you're that cold." <laughs> I'm ever the optimist. This is true. <laughs> I must admit, um, my missus has come down with the old uh, coronavirus this week, so um, she's got a bit of a fever. So that means every single window in the house. But bearing in mind, it was like what minus one overnight. Um, every window in the house is open right now and the heating's turned off. So I'm quite pleased to be in the studio with the air conditioning. Yeah,
1: you on just right need there. to turn some old retro consoles on
0: and then you're going to have enough heat. Yeah, switch my Power Mac G5 on and that's my uh, my office just warmed up in like 10 minutes.
2: There you go. Just take it to bed with you, mate. She'll be like, What's that sound? The it covers, it's nothing. Just wearing away, <laughs> cuddling it. Yeah, have
0: you heard how loud those are, Joe? No, I haven't actually. <laughs> Because, actually, because the Mac G5, you turn it on, and if you don't select, like, the disc you want to boot from, it's got, like, this kind of fail-safe where it ramps the fans up to maximum. Oh, really? And last time we did that, yeah, my missus, like, uh... Have you left a hairdryer on in your office? It's like <laughs> that's four, how loud this machine four
1: is. original Xboxes on top of each of our loudness. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah.
0: No one's sleeping through that. But yeah, we are into February now. Nice short month and it's going to be springtime. We've got it all to look forward to and plenty of retro gaming news stories to get through in just a moment. And we are going to be joined by someone who you may have seen the title of this week's show and thought, hold up a minute. He looks a bit familiar. He's been on before. Because we do get requests sometimes, you know. Actually, there are certain episodes where I think we leave the audience wanting more, and all the comments are like, "Oh, you need to get him on again." And this is definitely one of those occasions.
2: Oh yeah, absolutely. When you said that Ian was coming on, Ian Grieve was coming on again. I was like, I've got to jump on this one because I literally said we had Ian on now. Gosh, it was about episode two hundred, early two hundreds, wasn't it? So it was about two two years ago. About two years ago. And I I literally remember saying to myself, like, and saying to you, Dan, it was one of the funniest episodes we ever did. One of the best episodes I ever did, at least. So as soon as you said, like, I'm in contact with Ian again, I was like, get him on, get me on it. And it was really cool because it was like, you know, I think the plan was for us to kind of pick up from where we left off and get all the way to the end of his kind of gaming career. But he just had so much good stuff to talk about. We 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 still only got about two thirds of the way through it, didn't we? So we may have another Ian Grieve episode in about a hundred episodes time. But this was absolutely amazing. Um, we we kind of we got to PS one, yeah, in the first episode. So we kind of picked up from PS one, but we touched on you know the Mega CD as well because we kind of missed some of the, some of the other stuff that he worked on, you know, in the early nineties. In the last episode, so you know we were talking about like Bram Stoker's Dracula. Um, which was really fun. And we're talking about Wipeout 2047, League of Pain, Name Tenker, which is a
1: game not many oh, people yeah. talk
2: about. Um, so it was absolutely fantastic interview.
1: It's, it's good having these kind of people back because, you know, we get it requested quite a lot because mm. the show... We have to compress so much into the interview section.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Funny you should say that. I think we were up till about midnight with Ian, weren't we? It was about three hours. We started at 8pm. Yeah, Yeah. we started at 8pm. There's a lot of chat in between, admittedly, but also, I mean, you're going to really enjoy this interview. Um, We've actually got a special kind of Ian's Anecdotes Hour recorded separately that I think we're going to put out to our patrons as well as a bit of bonus content because he's just got so many amazing stories. But I mean, you know, all us guys love Psygnosis games. And, you know, I loved them from, like, Lemmings and Walker games like that on the Amiga. But then Wipeout and Wipeout 2097, I mean, they were just, you know, you forget how revolutionary those mm. games were and those incredible soundtracks on them as well. And like we said in this interview, that kind of felt like, you know, gaming became so cool. I, I, I time, remember
1: when that? Bram Stoker's Dracula came out and it was, like, all over Games Master. There was huge promos of it and it had that kind of captured footage as well uh yeah. yeah which look really cool in games you know the mortal combat style um, yeah yeah kind of detail yeah
0: yeah so you're gonna really enjoy um, this catch up with ian grieve it's one of these again joe you know when we just do some interviews and your face actually hurts at the end of it from laughing oh so much. god
2: yeah honestly <laughs> i was in pain at the end of it I, I think you know i came away with a six pack as well like laughing from it so
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> so excellent interview
0: and I remember last time, even looking, you know, as we put the episodes on YouTube for like, you know, the few hundred people who like to listen on there. And I think all the comments were, you need to get him on again. You need to get him on again. So for everyone that wants to hear more from Ian Grieve, you're not going to be disappointed. We've got another fantastic chat with him coming up. The Cygnosis legend, he'll be on the show in around 25 minutes from now. Now let's jump straight into the news this week because I've been seeing this absolutely everywhere and I imagine your heart was broken in particular by this news, Joe, being our resident Sega fanboy. And I know you've been out to Japan and checked out the Sega arcades out there as well. But Sega is officially quitting the arcade business after 56 years.
1: I think this is madness. Like, it's really weird that the way that they've put it out is that this other company um, is, is uh, taking over Sega and they're going to be rebranded as Jigo. Like, yeah. get into the gaming oasis. And, like, you know, Sega's such a huge brand. And I'm sure when you went to Japanjo and you saw, you know, the huge logos everywhere, it had that familiarity. This Jigo thing doesn't seem like that familiar <laughs> to me. It is it is
2: really sad. I mean, I find it really sad. Like you say, I, I went to Japan. I went to Tokyo. Uh, gosh, 2019 now. You know, and it was everywhere, and I, I always butcher the name of the area that I stayed in, but a- 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 Akihabara. I, I, that's the best I can do. I know. think you said it right there. <laughs> I then. think I did all right there. And they had like you know the massive, massive Sega arcade with the huge Sega logo across it. It's like a massive red building with the blue classic Sega logo across it. And you know, it, it, it's it's all down to COVID. Unfortunately, mm. you know, we, we we just just we discussed it on the show. In yeah. November 2020, um, when they sold 85.1 percent of their arcades and shares of like the inter- entertainment division of Sega to this company, um, Gigo, like
1: you say, yeah, and they also and- had plans to do this Fog Gaming data center, which was this kind of way of remote doing arcades, yeah, and, you know, streaming yeah. it on the cloud and stuff, so
2: yeah. So sorry, they, they, Genda is the the name of the company, and they're calling it Gigo, like you say. And yeah. you know they had fourteen point nine percent of the arcade shares still owned by Sega. But yeah, they've they've that's it. They've they've announced they're done. But interestingly, at the point of recording this, Sega haven't actually discussed it. It's the company they've sold it to who have made all the announcements about it yeah Uh, and maybe because it is sad you know and it's sad for sega but it's all down to covid and that nobody was going to the arcades for like well we we were talking
1: about arcade machines before and every single one that we go to in a show most of the machines like the outrun one and like you know the twin seating ones the um uh, shooting ones like House of the Dead and stuff. like yeah. that. They're, 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 all so, they're all Sega. They're all Sega. My right, my, yeah.
2: my favorite arcade machine of all time is probably House of the Dead, and I think Dan yours is is Golden Axe. Is it like? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, Love you know, them. both Sega and like Dan, uh, Ravi, you said was a Crazy Taxi, which I'm sure Sega as yeah. well. You were saying earlier on, so it's just Sega are just such Time Crisis as well. Time Crisis. I think they're Namco. I don't think they're Sega. Oh, they're, okay. They're Namco, but. There's so, so many, many, many big Sega arcade games and stuff. And it is, I mean, I know times have moved with arcade, especially in the UK. We don't really get classic arcades like that. It's all kind of penny pusher stuff. But, you know, Japan, it was still really, really prominent until two years ago, until COVID hit. So it is really sad. But but it's also nice that it's just that it's not just that they've closed and the arcades are gone. It's nice that somebody's bought it and they're trying to get it go. But like you say, Dan, 56
0: years they've been doing, you know, the arcades. Ravi made a good point before as well, you know, the fact that how big Sega is mm. in in the world of, world of arcade. It's interesting why they didn't just, you know, maybe this deal where they bought the rest of the shares, why they didn't just license the Sega name and keep bought. it. Because you think that would have been yeah. or they even much did more like, valuable than Gigo.
1: You, you know, yeah. like one-up One Up arcades, if they did like Sega versions of that. Or, yeah, you know what I mean? Like they, there's a whole it seems a bit like just running away from the arcade industry. And I guess like they probably didn't have control with its shares and people buying it out, but I'd love to see them have a hand in it. Like, hopefully this is just a temporary thing and, you know, somehow they return in force in the future.
2: Well, they did say in November, 2020, when they were, uh, you know, you mentioned the fog gaming and stuff like that. Sega did say that, you know, they partnered with Microsoft and they were, Doing the uh, the new the new super game strategy, which will centre around developing new and innovative titles where the key focuses are global and online community. So mm. that says to me kind of like the metaverse, you know, virtual reality, and oh, you know, yeah. staying online yeah. and community yeah. and stuff like that. Um, I think that's where Sega feel the money is going to be, which is probably is where the money
1: is. Um, I, I I do think though, like. Home arcades and that whole kind of scene is 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 quite big. Like I'd love to see like a virtual cop 2 oh, yeah, uh, machine or something like that. You know, yeah, like, uh, or house of the dad. I'd love but, that. Yeah, maybe like they'll a... do partnerships with one or or maybe they'll do amazing. partnerships with other people or, yeah. or or just maybe they'll think right, we're just gonna go solo and do a. There'll be all these Gigo ones, and we'll do our own solo arcade. I'm I'm
0: not sure.
2: Uh, I think I think they're done with the arcades, but that would be really awesome to see like Arcade 1-Up Sega machines and stuff like that. That would be really cool.
0: You know what I'm wondering, obviously these stories we're reading here are about Sega closing down their physical arcades in Japan. That's really the headline of this story. But are they also stopping making arcade games? Is that side of the company closing down or is this just some closing the the physical venues? It doesn't say, but I imagine so.
2: With you know, well they only
0: released one last year. Yeah, and that they, was a uh, Virtual Fighter Esports. Yeah,
2: it was a Virtual Fighter. It was an update of like Virtual Fighter Five, essentially, wasn't it? Yeah. So, yeah, I think they're done. To be perfectly honest, from just kind of reading into this, I think they're completely done with arcades. And you know, it's it's the it's the Sega Entertainment Division, which is gone, uh, yeah. which says to me, arc, not just the arcades as in the famous kind of like big red buildings, but as in the you know the whole division
1: of making arcade games.
2: Is, is gone as well I could be wrong so don't it, take you know, that as but
1: as like a Sega fanboy um for you it must have been good to kind of say you know we're we're still in the arcades and like still got that kind of presence it, and it, you know
2: it, it's nice to you know especially when I kind of like talk to people who aren't big into gaming or big into retro gaming when I tell them about like my podcast and stuff and they go oh god is that kind of stuff still prominent and I, it was always nice to say god yeah in Japan it's massive you know they've still got all the mm. Sega arcades and stuff you know, so now I guess I can just stay, still say, oh, yeah, it's massive in Japan. They've got the arcades. No, <laughs> the Gigo Arcade. The Gigo One. Arcade. Yeah, it's massive the in Brazil. It's massive yeah, in Brazil yeah, yeah. with, with Tectoy toy, tech now. toy. Yeah. <laughs>
0: exactly. Definitely the end of an era, though. I mean, you know, all the memories of, you know, you know, Sega World we had in London, of course. And we've talked about that on the show before, back in the 90s. You know, I've got vivid memories of going into arcades and hearing oh, that yes. Daytona music playing and, yeah. Virtua Fighter for the first time when I saw that as a kid. And yeah, Golden Axe, like you said, it always make a beeline for that. Sega Rally, another incredible game. So, you know, it is going to be very sad that that legacy is now coming to an end. But I'm maybe thinking, maybe Sega are going to turn their attention to something else. Maybe a, I don't know, a home console it would be quite nice to see them doing Ooh, again. That wouldn't it? Now they've got nice. some that resources nice. back. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll, two. we'll keep you posted. <laughs> oh, that's not that rumour again. <laughs> so we'll keep you posted on what Sega are doing next as we hear more, and we'll link up that story and everything else in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, this is an interesting little article that you found on a website called makeuseof.com, Ravi, and this is about DIY projects that repurpose old video game consoles. Now, when I first read that, I had all these ideas of uh people gutting systems and... And they're turning like a Nintendo into a toaster or something. Tell me it's not that.
1: Did did it make you shudder, Dan? I think we love the thought of it. (laughs) We love to cover this kind of stuff in the podcast, like little repurposing. And this is like a full collection of them. And um, some people have done that, yeah. But a lot of people have said, you know, it's broken and stuff. And it's not that rage inducing. Uh, They've used. Broken carts or, or broken consoles, and they've kind of—it's
0: not that like Logan Paul making a table out of fully working. Well, Game
1: well, boys. this is the thing. So
2: or Logan go... Paul going up to people in Akihabara and buying Game Boys and then smashing them on the floor and then trying to return them.
0: <laughs> well, <laughs> if you were there, Joe. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, the first—that's why Sega are leaving. No, um, yeah. The first... <laughs> the first thing in this is a, a guy's actually turned a NES controller into a nightlight, and he's done it by just putting LEDs in the side, and then. Doing this resin casting mold, um, which you know a lot of people have been doing m- casting. I know we saw that Logan Paul thing, which was he was casting Game Boys in a uh, in kind of resin. It looks nice, I, you know, but I'd I'd like to have access to them. But this is a cool idea. A few little LEDs in a in a spare kind of controller. Another one, the second one is um, converting an old NES into a DVD player. Now. I don't think DVD players are that popular, so <laughs> this one
0: seems a bit
1: <laughs> a bit like odd because it's like two dead technologies, there. You know,
0: to, to be fair, the video does look like it was filmed in like 2006. <laughs> I was yeah, gonna yeah. say it's I, I mean,
2: somebody's collection. This, I mean, it's really cool that the kind of the articles put it all in one place. Um, but I was gonna say some of these are a bit on the older side, but some of them, you know, like you say, I think the DVD one, like yeah, it's old technology, but the way he's made it is like when the DVD drive comes out and the disc drive comes out, the NES flap does actually open automatically, which I thought was really smart. (laughs) I did think that's, you know, okay, it's an old technology, but that's
0: cool,
1: man, that the NES opens up itself. It just needs it to be Blu-ray, doesn't it? (laughs) Yeah,
0: exactly. It just needs to be Blu-ray. But what I loved... Get a PlayStation 5 transplanted in there. Yeah,
2: yeah, that would be sick. The one I really liked, which is quite far down on the list, um, but I thought was really simple and really interesting, is the uh, USB drive in the uh, Sega Mega Drive controller where mm. he literally just opens up an old broken Mega Drive controller, takes out like, you know, the board out of it and then literally just he just literally like sellotapes a um, USB stick, in USB there, an stick extension. into it, yeah. and, it gets, and then puts the extension cord out where the normal controller cord would go and it's really simple but it looks really good and I was just like, you know what, I've never even thought of anything like that before. Um, well, there's but- a,
1: a, a Nintendo lunchbox. I think that looks like the most destructive. So, uh, w- what they're actually doing is they're taking a, a Nintendo and then he's Dremeling all the parts out of the inside and and kind of clearing it so it's like a lunchbox and putting hinges on it. But at the very end, he puts it inside the fridge and it fits perfectly. Like you know, you can keep your lunch cool inside an old Nes. <laughs> Imagine turning up to work with your
2: lunchbox and it's. It's an actual Nintendo, not just a launch box. it's like painted like one, an actual old yeah. 1985
1: and, Nintendo. But 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 that's the most destructive one. That is like you know the the one that makes you shudder. That is the Nintendo. Yeah, launch box. I, I, and
2: I, and I think that's kind of like the discussion point there. Like you know when people smash up this old technology and stuff like that to repurpose it, when especially when it's like retro games, it, it does make me shudder. But I guess if it's 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 dead. It's broken. You know, and there's no way of it being repaired. Then it's okay because you know an old friend of mine used to make clocks out of, out of PS1s and Playstations when they were broken. They used to go to car boots and pick them up for like you know a couple of quid when they were broken, and he did, and it was really smart actually. You know, you can imagine you know the original PlayStation. It's just a clock face with with the clock. You know, with the um, hands like turning and stuff. So I, I think it's it's acceptable. When it's upcycling. That's called, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, 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 upcycling. There we go.
0: I remember, like probably about ten years ago, you'd hear of it more. But it was um people that would make fish tanks out of like you know the old Air Bondi Blue IMAX. Oh uh, yeah, got them and they're uh, like, aren't fish they like
1: sixteen thousand pounds each now or something. Like the Bondi Blue uh, ones. I haven't checked
0: the prices. I'm not sure, Some... but yeah, I imagine they're more valuable now <laughs> really than were a rare. decade ago. Yeah. And much G5s, there was a whole blog I remember seeing about people that had repurposed them um, into, like, benches and garden furniture and <laughs> all yeah, kinds of yeah, stuff. Yeah, I saw, which...
1: actually, someone made a filing cabinet, which was G5s on the side, and you could, like, pull them out as drawers. That was really cool.
0: Again, I mean, if they're broken, I kind of think, you know, fair enough, but... Now the price of this stuff's going up again. I mean, you know, you might have a filing cabinet there that's worth about four grand or something now if you didn't <laughs>
2: the machines back then. It's just a filing cabinet made out of GameCubes or something. How many GameCubes Maybe did I you break? A hundred?
1: I've got this, um, what is it, uh, PlayStation one. Uh, the rare one, Nintendo PlayStation, and I've made a oh, lunchbox
0: out of it. <laughs> Can you imagine? So uh, yeah, we we do like to see responsible use of a retro game console. That's the thing, though. To a lot of people, like you know these old systems, if you're not really into it, sometimes I guess it's a bit different now with the value of them shooting up and the fact that you do see everywhere how valuable retro games and stuff are now. Which a lot of people we forget these systems that we love so much for a certain amount of time that you know that they're kind of useless junk to a lot of people aren't they which is obviously heartbreaking but mm. we'd rescue them wouldn't we Joe if we, oh we saw God. anyone doing
2: that oh yeah 100% I see you know <laughs> when you go to the tip and you know you see people like throwing away these big boxes of like wires and technology I always want to run over and check what it is just to see if I can save it <laughs> like,
0: well, no, we, we had it outside my work didn't we the other week it was uh, yeah. of throwing away three or four CRTs into a skip. I know you were
2: going to go back and have a look in it and dive in, in and, have and to work. Work. it rained all night didn't it so
0: you didn't <laughs> yeah I didn't fancy fishing out a 38 inch CRT uh, on my own in the pouring rain <laughs> so uh, unfortunately I think they've gone to the uh, the TV maker in the sky unfortunately but um, yeah you know it is good to preserve this stuff if you can if not you know if it is broken why not make something cool out of it I guess so you can check out a few of those uh, repurposed retro gaming console projects we'll put that in our show notes at theretrohour.com little reminder as well that the reason we can bring you this podcast every Friday is thanks to the community of incredible patrons that we have. Um, And I've got to say, now that we're into February, uh, I was saying last week that January was a quiet month for patron, uh, which is understandable. You know, start of the year, everyone's broke after Christmas, that long stretch between paydays, you know, there's tax bills and all that, tell me about that. But actually you guys have come through because I think we're up to at the time recording this 260 patrons which I think is a record we've never gone over 260 before no I don't
2: think we've ever hit 260 we, we were hovering around 250 for a while and like you say we'd lose yeah. a couple which we understand and then we'll gain a couple but yeah this this last week's been really really good so a massive massive thank you and we appreciate it massively because as you always say Dan you know kind of like January February is like when everything kind of renews for us as well. Yeah. And it used to all come out of our own pockets. You know, we, we do this as a hobby and we've managed to keep it going with Patreon and keep it going as independently as possible. And
1: I that- I think for the first two, three years we had like a kitty jar. Yeah. Which was just PayPal and we would just like chuck a random amount in there and, you know, it w- it would be a small amount. We could go out and have a meal. Um, but we wouldn't be able to maintain the show for like free people and stuff. And 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 this really helps, you know especially with lockdown we managed to all get studios and keep keep the quality really high and you know you guys get rewarded for that as well.
0: Yeah absolutely so uh, if you want to back us on Patreon you know it can be as little as I think it's two ninety nine a month in you know, the price of a you know not even a fancy coffee these days that is it um, but in return for that we do give you some nice little perks as well not only do you get the uh, usual podcast you get it early most weeks you get it ad free as well you get extra bonus content I think last week's uh, episode for patrons was so about 50 minutes longer than the release episode so there's quite a bit in there you get your own rss feed you can put into your podcast app so you get the uh the, the custom patrons version and also we do an exclusive podcast each month called the retro hour after hours where that is one of my favorite shows that we do that is all so much fun
2: yeah i absolutely love the after hours we uh
0: covered off uh
2: the year 1993 in our most mm. recent one because we kind of do like the retro hours where we talk uh, the retro years where we talk through different years of like where we were in gaming that year and stuff like that which was really cool but we've got a very special one this uh this month coming um which you did mention earlier in the episode where we kind of did a you know ian was like you know our, our very special guest that we've got on this this week was you know is there anything more i can do for you guys you know do you do you want do you want a second interview with like a third interview with me right now and um, you know we explained about the uh, the Patreon to him, and he was like, "Well, let me out you out, boys. Let's let's do an after hours." So we kind of did an after hours with Ian, didn't we? Um, with with oh, all the tales, stories in there, yeah, you can't <laughs> yeah. broadcast. Yeah. So, so that that is going to be coming out in the next couple of weeks as well, which uh, you know is is going to be for our level two tier and above. Um, you know, and that's not one to be missed, to be perfectly honest.
0: Yeah, and of course we do. And now we're into February. There will be a Patrons Hangout coming up as well in a couple of weeks' time. This is where we all get together, kind of like a virtual pub meet or a virtual users group, and we just nerd out. Always so much fun. So get access to all that by backing us, and of course ensure that this podcast comes out every single Friday. And a big thank you to our latest supporters. Hello, and thank you to Crap c 64 gamer Love that handle. <laughs> uh, John Stewart, Platinum Backer who's a Platinum yeah. member. Thank you so much, John Legend. Bill E. And Taro Ritu, who all backed us on Patreon. We hugely appreciate your support. And if you'd like to join them, all the details to back us on Patreon are on our website at theretrohour.com. Now, when we do the Patrons Hangout, I normally uh, do kind of shoehorn some Atari Jaguar talking there. <laughs> Most of them I'm discuss. It is the only system I collect for, despite the fact I've actually got my Atari Jaguar set up right next to me now. Um, I've got a flashcart for it, but I still, you know, still keep collecting the games for some reason, even though I got the flashcart. But I do like it when unreleased games surface for the Jaguars. That was one thing about it. I mean, the Jaguar came out um, actually in 1993. We're talking about it on the After Hours podcast in that really awkward time that transition from 16-bit to 32-bit or, or 64-bit. If you're the Jaguar, you know where there was all these systems that came along just for a couple of years before the PlayStation and uh, the N64. It was very crowded, wasn't it? It was, and uh, a lot of software companies didn't know who to back, which is why a load of games were promised for the Atari Jaguar that actually ended up not making it to market or got cancelled during the the prototyping kind of era. And this is a game that's uh, been found called um,
1: Speedster. Yeah, this is an interesting title. It doesn't look like the most technically advanced title that you can get it 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 looks like fun but um it's got an interesting story to it so um originally it was like unearthed at an auction in 2001 and um it's kind of a a hybrid game of uh arcade racing game and like a child's ride as well apparently it's like like right. one of these kind of like where you put a
2: pound in and you know it like rocks back and forth for like a little child you know like a a postman pat van or something it was one of them, but with an interactive screen, like game with it, essentially, was it?
1: I think so. It seems to be like uh, it would be actually in a cabinet with a physical seat. Yeah, yeah, that's what I meant. With like a said, car, yeah, yeah. yeah. But it yeah. would be a powered by the Jag. Yeah. Which, you know, I've not really seen that many kind of Jag arcade units. I know there was one Amiga CD32 Cubo, which was this, like, French... I think it was French, like arcade unit and, uh, you know, you could have a jammer interface and stuff. But I've never never seen this with the Jag. I know it was repurposed and used for a lot of other stuff at the time.
0: Like like dental equipment. Yeah, later on. The yeah, the Jagu- eventually yeah. yeah, this looks interesting. So really, it's a kind of, I was going to say a racing game, but it's not even a racing game. You're a car that travels along a road and then various things come towards you. Um, you can drive through cowpats by the looks of it <laughs> and collect them, which would have amused me greatly as a six-year-old. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Right, <laughs> and then there's like a duck flies over as well. I mean, it doesn't look the most enthralling game I've ever seen, but um, visually looks a bit homemade, if I'm honest, yeah. as did many Atari Jaguar games.
2: Yeah. Well, it, it was made in 1995, apparently, and just kind of I, I interrupted Ravi there with the description of the game, but... Uh, I think where we was going with it is the prototype was actually sold at auction in 2001. And then from right. there, it just disappeared for 20 years, for 21 years. But now it's been, like you say, it's been unearthed in January, 2022. Uh, somebody has essentially found the cartridge and it's kind of circulated through Atari collectors and they've all dumped the ROM online, essentially, uh, for uh, everybody there, to play.
1: Yeah, there's this whole scene of... Um... Hoarders of, of people that basically get prototypes and then keep them to themselves. And, like, oh, yeah, we've discussed this before, and you know, we, we buy them for high prices and swap them around and don't show people and stuff. But, you know, I think it's good that this one's come out and that people can actually have a look at it. Um, uh, you know, Dan, will you be wanting to get this in your collection and recreate it at home with a, a toy car? <laughs> <laughs> you,
0: you know, what I'm thinking because you look at this game and it doesn't really go anywhere. I'm thinking this could be like the next kind of long play. You know, like Desert Bus on the Mega CD? Mega <laughs> oh, yeah. <Taylor> game? <laughs>
2: <laughs> you got to dodge the cow pats for the next nine hours.
0: <laughs> it's got that kind of vibe to it, hasn't it, when you watch yeah, it? Yeah, it
2: has actually. Now you've said it, yeah.
0: <laughs> so, yeah, Ravi, get that on Twitch. Oh, yeah. Honestly, well, we got I the need roof. to get a Jag first.
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh, I didn't realise you didn't have one. That's another person on the show needs one.
0: <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, there are many games that didn't come out in the Atari Jaguar that I'm quite interested in. I must admit, this wasn't one of them. But, you know, whenever anything surfaces, it was kind of a long lost or we didn't hear about back then. I always think that's quite interesting. Now, something that wasn't, that is now looking like a very real possibility is that we could soon be able to play a decent port of Castlevania on the Amiga. Now, we did get the um, original Castlevania ported to the Amiga back in 1990, which wasn't the best port. I mean, not as good as the original NES version. But now there is a homebrew version targeted at more advanced Amigas. And you're watching the video of the prototype version of this earlier, Joe, and you were very impressed.
3: Yeah,
2: this this has blown my mind. This has. so this is Castlevania running on the Amiga, and I was like, okay, I'm Resident Castlevania fan for the retro hour here, and straight away I'm like, let's have a let's have a laugh running on the Amiga kind of thing. I have been absolutely blown away by the sound of this game. You know, the music in it, it like I, I literally I questioned
1: rabbit. I was like, that's on the Amiga. He's like, yeah, I, I DJ Amiga, mate. I- <laughs> you
2: know, the music's good. Yeah. <laughs> and I was just like, You sure? The Amiga, like, kind of thing. He's like, Yeah. And it's it's so, it's the Castlevania, it's the Sharp X6 8000 version, 68000 version of Castlevania, which came out in Japan in like the early 90s, I want to say. And then it got ported as Castlevania Chronicles in like 2000, 2001 for the PlayStation for like the west, you know, the western area of the world um mm. it's a just a really nice looking version of um the original castlevania so much much nicer looking than the original nintendo version um with you know essentially like a, a digital soundtrack you know because it was like on on computer and on disc on the playstation but to see this running on the amiga is absolutely amazing so how how's this happened ravi
1: yeah so this is that engine that we were talking about, um, that I've completely forgot the name of. Scorpio. Okay. Yes, that was it. Yeah, last week. And um, it's just enabling people to do amazing ports. And uh, Sharp 68K is basically the same process as 68K is the Amiga. So I can okay. imagine it's uh, a bit easier to do. But um, they've done the first level of this and... It's it seems to be running well. There's a few glitches and stuff, but you know it can get ironed out. And it's the same developer who did a a port of Green Beret earlier as well, mm. which is a pretty awesome game. Um, but this also shows. So the ones that we've looked at before, like um, we looked at the Street Fighter one, that was targeted for the uh, OCS machines and uh, the like the Amiga five hundred, which mm, is like the yeah. lower one. This is AGA, so this is targeted for the um. You know, the other ones are coming from the MSX as well. They were MSX the Sports. bit yeah. yeah. This is the 32-bit, so you've got more colours um, yeah. on the screen. And, and, yeah, there's extra bonuses that you get with using the AGA chipset, which is probably, like, closer to the Sharp.
0: So- well, you've got some gorgeous parallax like scrolling at the start of this as well. That works really well. But, um, yeah I mean, the AGA chipset on the Amiga had, you know, loads more colours than the original chipset. So that makes sense that, you know, graphically it could do it. But yeah, the audio was the same in every Amiga, which actually, this kind of proves just how well the Amiga could do in-game sound effects and music at the same time. Which often, I mean, when you played, you know, a lot of these kind of Euro platforms back in the 90s, you either pick between, like, music or sound effects. It was actually quite rare to get both in a lot of games, wasn't it? They they hadn't
1: cracked it for a long time, so it was like you'd be amazed, Joe, you used to start up Amiga games and it would say, sound effects or music? <laughs> and it'd be like, Zoom. Yeah, <laughs> and you'd have to choose, like, right. And and that's, like, you know, my
2: experience, with the, you know, I'm not the Amiga guy, you, you know, you guys know that, a lot of our listeners know that, but my experience of Amiga is, you know, is that, like, I, I get this kind of, like, what's the word I'm looking for? Kind of, like... It's like an emptiness, <sighs> I felt. Yeah, like a... Like I get like a filtered view of the Amiga, like, you know, I don't see you guys obviously you love it and you see like what it could do, but I just see these terrible ports. Well
1: well, there was a kind of like European kind of scene and that, that some of the games weren't amazing for it. And when yeah, you would get ports you get Yeah, yeah you get stuff like Alien Free, which was just like the Mega Drive port, but it had no sound and no yeah. music. So you'd yeah. just be killing people in a yeah. in a quiet room, and you'd hear like,
2: oh, yeah, boom, boom, boom. And, and, and you know,
1: and, and that's my experience with it. But
2: then when you see, you know, we covered Street Fighter Two, running on it last week, and now Castlevania running on it, and like you say, Green Beret last year running on it, like, and they look and sound amazing. It it is sad to just see that people just used to shovel them out. Do you know what I mean? Like like you say, the European scene
1: when you yeah. could do so much more. And that was the thing, it was, it was an afterthought with a lot of companies, they didn't put it as the primary release mm. platform, where, where other companies, when they focused on the releases and did it as the primary like release, it was beautiful because they used all the tricks and they focused on it, but you know, it was like a second thought for a lot of people.
0: And I think as well the fact that it didn't have kind of first party games by many of the big Japanese developers. That's kind of yeah. where you know, something like yeah. the Mega Drive differed or the or the Super Nintendo. Uh, the fact that even if we did get kind of ports of the big arcade games that were famous in Japan, they were generally handled by kind of British or German yeah. software studios, yeah. weren't they? Like US Gold would hire a third-party company to kind of port it to the Amiga that weren't done first-party, which I think is where that bad quality kind of came in. Yeah, a where, lot of the where time. like
1: Shadow of the Beast would be first-party and it would just like yeah. look beautiful and aim for that system, you know?
0: Yeah, so it just kind of proved that, you know, if the Amiga did get more of those kind of, you know, legendary titles from Japan, it, it just could have done a, a whole lot more. And I think it also proves, I mean, we talked, um, we were talking about Aladdin um, on the Amiga, yeah, weren't we? Which yeah. was a really good port. Again, that's another Amiga 1200 only game. Not many of those came out. You know, games that really took advantage of the the extra power that machine has. So again, it shows just how well it could do these kind of arcade games too. So, and this Scorpion engine, I mean, I need to look at this a bit more because it just seems like they're doing the impossible with this thing now. It's it's my So many
1: releases are coming out now, aren't they? And I think we're just gonna keep seeing like ports of everything coming to the Amiga, and it's it's fabulous. Yeah, really good stuff. And quickly, yeah. This is why like, I'm not going to bother upgrading my. Uh, Amiga six hundred laptop because it's going to be able to handle
0: all of these uh, amazing ports, you know. Yeah, so we look forward to uh, seeing what's next. So I uh, keep them coming. If you want to check out the uh, the video of that, we'll put it in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, before we get into our chat with Ian Grieve, some amazing stories from Signosis, you know, one of the best companies ever. We always love hearing stories from Ian as well. He's coming up in just a moment. Let's take a quick break to give a big thank you to this week's sponsor, and actually, this is a new sponsor who we thought was very worthwhile. And they're very timely as well, because this week's show is brought to you with our friends Better Help Online Therapy. Now, obviously, the last couple of years, I think it's fair to say, it's been difficult in terms of um, physical health, you know, with COVID and careers and stuff, and people not being able to travel and see family. Our mental health has actually taken a bit of a battering over the last couple of years. I think that's true for everyone.
1: Yeah, and, like, this podcast has kind of helped me survive. And, uh, you know... It, it, it's really important mental health is. And I think um, you know, if you if you wanna find a bit of extra mental health and you and you wanna kind of talk about stuff, then uh this is a really good service, better help.
2: You know, I'm always happy
1: to talk about mental
2: health, but I'm a big, big believer that take away the mental part of it, it's health. It's health at the end of the day. Mm. And sometimes we don't always feel okay, just like we sometimes you know, Dan, you're really cold at the moment and your missus has got COVID. I feel the same way with mental health. Sometimes you're unwell for a couple of days and that can be exactly the same for mental health and there shouldn't be a stigma around it because you can just feel, Mm. you know, it's accepted if like, oh yeah, I've got a bit of a sore throat and I feel unwell. So why is it not accepted? as much when you're just like, I'm having a bad mental health day and I do feel unwell. And, you know, it's getting becoming a lot more accepted, but there's still a lot of people out there who still are afraid to accept these things and talk about these things. So, you know, I think the BetterHelp sponsor and app is a really good place to kind of start if you feel
0: that way. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing is as well, I mean, they told us when we were talking to them that one of the main things that they want, the point they want to get across is, you know, a lot of people think that you wait until things get bad before Mm. you do any form of therapy. But actually, it's not. It's actually a tool to utilize before things get worse so you can avoid, like, the lows. You know, it's always, always good to have these tools at your disposal as well. Now, BetterHelp, if you're not familiar with them, they're a customized online therapy service. They offer video phone, even live chat sessions online with your therapist. You don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to, and it's a lot more affordable than in-person therapy because I think that's another kind of impression a lot of people get that it's only for, like, rich people. You know, they often think it's really, really expensive. But you get matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. And you can give it a try and see why over 2 million people are now using BetterHelp online therapy. So give them a try right now and we'll actually give you 10% 10% off your first month by using our exclusive link. So all you got to do is head to this address, betterhelp.com slash retro. That's betterhelp.com retro. We're big believers in this service. So give it a try and get 10% off your first month. And a big thank you to our friends at BetterHelp for their support of our podcast. Right then, are we Ready? For some stories from Cygnosis. We always love chatting to our guests this week. He's back for more incredible inside stories about the industry back in the early to late 90s. We concentrate on this time with our special guest, Ian Grieve, the Cygnosis legend, is coming up next on the Retro Hour podcast. <laughs> You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it is time for the main event then when we welcome on a very special guest. And you know, we've been doing this show for over six years now. There are not many guests that we get back on, but there are, you know, certain guests that we get that so many people are like, you need to do a part two with that person because, you know, they so many amazing stories. And uh, today we're going to be joined by, uh, it's part two of our chat with Psygnosis legend Ian Grieve. It's great to welcome you back, Ian. How are you doing?
3: Gentlemen, I'm absolutely fine. It's a pleasure to be with you. I'm still here. I'm still alive. I'm still kicking. Yeah,
0: I was going to say that we had you on. Uh, I think January 2020, your last on this show, and obviously the world's changed quite a bit since then. So, well, uh, we to be really honest with you, to be
3: honest with you, Dan, I'm kind of holding you guys responsible for that global pandemic because <laughs> uh, immediately after it, it kind of it all kicked off, didn't it?
0: It did. I think Joe forgot to renew his uh, Norton antivirus. I think
3: (laughs) 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 I was using a dodgy copy. Uh, that's right. He, he was in the Caribbean hiding out under murder charges or something, right? That was something a... like that. <laughs> or was that Kaspersky? Was it? I don't know which one that was. Well, I remember mean, last time we had to
0: listen back um, to where we got to, because I mean, we were chatting about loads on the last interview that we did, and uh, I think we got to the stage where we were talking about Colony Wars, which obviously was that incredible PlayStation Space Combat Simulator. Yes. Although I did realise we didn't talk much about um, one game before that, which would be nice to maybe start with, was... Um, Bram Stoker's Dracula, which of course was a a Mega CD exclusive, which was based on a movie and actually one of the few games that I remember being, you know, an exclusive to the Mega CD and taking advantage of it. What are your kind of memories of that then? Let's let's go back to Bram Stoker's a bit.
3: Oh, my. Okay. No, are, are we really going to go there? Because most of us, when you mention Bram Stoker's Dracula, tend to try and look the other way, really. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I'm not... Okay, so as you guys know, I always wear... Two hats, right? I have a I have a business hat and I have a, a, a product and a game and a development hat. And those hats are, are very different colors. Um, so wearing my business hat, I would say that Bram Stoker's Dracula was just fantastic for us as a company. It was like a hyperspace jump for, for Psygnosis, right? It just really, really triggered us into the next level. Uh, I think from a game production point of view, I think it would be fair to say it was not our finest hour but the problem is and we learned very quickly from it that it's a movie a movie property a licensed movie property and of course your time scale for a licensed movie property is dramatically reduced from what you would expect from an original ground up product um, you know you are mm. you are brought in off the bench when there's like you know 20 minutes left on the clock and you're expected to score a hat trick immediately right which is kind of like Uh okay. Yeah, okay, we'll we'll try, right? But getting into that world of like movie production, uh, large studio stuff, merchandising, revenue generation, uh, you know, consumer products that are that are attached to the value of the overall ecosphere of, of what becomes a movie, which is not just what you see on the screen, it's a hell of a lot more, right? And for those guys, they're they're kind of like, well, you know, you've got lots of time, we've got merchandising rollout, we've got to go into video and and go into sales and after sales. And we're like, guys, we want to release this at the same time that the movie comes out so that the license has a value. You know, people see the movie, they see the poster, they see the adverts. And therefore, when they see our game, hopefully they buy the game, right? That was the whole idea behind it. That's the value of an IP. So yeah, so we, we kind of got eased into that whole world because uh, we we had that relationship with with Sony and with with ImageSoft in particular because ImageSoft was the new brand name for CBS Games. Uh, it, it, it had become its own division within Sony. Sony liked the the, the games business; they thought it was kind of cool, and they they wanted to get involved. And of course, you know, behind the scenes there was ongoing discussions with Nintendo. About uh, combining the Super Nintendo with a CD-ROM drive to to make you know what was eventually going what was supposed to be the PlayStation, right? That's where the name came yeah, from. Yeah. Right? That was the that was the code name for it. While they were trying to graft the CD-ROM unit onto a Super Nintendo, I mean, now looking back, it seems like a crazy idea, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, we, we had Nick Alexander, you know, from, from Sega on last week. And I, I said to him, you know, they, they were obviously they are launching Mega CD. And I said to him, uh, were you surprised when Nintendo dropped out of the CD race? And he went, no, they were absolutely right to do that. I don't blame them. He said, <laughs>
3: Well, Nick, Nick, Nick was never one to pull punches, was he?
0: Yeah,
3: yeah. <laughs> Nick was a good guy, right? I mean, the, 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 <laughs> he was also one of the faces at uh, ECTS down in London, right, when we used to be at the Islington Design Centre pretending to work and then going out and get uproariously drunk every night, right? Um, <laughs> but I don't. I, I suppose he didn't talk about any of that, did he?
0: No, no, I didn't hear those stories. I'll have to get him on for a part two.
3: <laughs> You see, they all get annoyed at me, right? They're like, oh my God, no, he's going on. He's going to say stuff, right? Don't say stuff. Just talk about games. This is all about just the games, right? No it's not i think it's about the life behind the people who make the games i think that's really <laughs> important but anyway I'm oh, sorry digressing <laughs> and crazy there digressing crazy we, we will get to those other subjects in a little while um so yeah i think uh, i think that when 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 nintendo were, were all set and good to go uh, sony were kind of like okay well now we should make some products of our own to put on this thing so that nintendo aren't making all the money and we look like idiots who are just providing content and technology right they wanted to make games and so what a momentous decision that was right Mm. and the sum total of sony's game division at that time was like probably five people uh rich robinson god bless him and he was a lovely man uh but uh he was uh, he was instrumental in in kind of reaching out and doing the deals, and we I, we talked about Rich before, right? And then, of course, the wonderful Alan Becker, right? Bless him. Alan Becker was uh, the first employee of CBS Games, I think, actually, and uh, has you know recently I found out he's retired, which was surprising because he's been around forever, right? He's one of those guys who's been responsible for so many games and so many studios and so much development, but kind of never really took the limelight or kind of hit the headlines. So, but, uh, but, but Alan's a, a wonderful, wonderful, in fact, he's a godfather to my eldest daughter. Uh, he and I oh, became firm friends and stayed friends forever. So I, I, I love him dearly. He's a wonderful man. Um, but uh, so, yeah, so we were kind of eased in with those guys and, and, and they were wanting to make products. So they reached out to us and said, hey, you know, we, we need to make, we need to make some products. We need to do some stuff for this. And uh, you guys are the CD-ROM experts, and we want to kind of bleed that technology in. And the first one out of the gate was uh, was Francis Ford Coppola's uh, Dracula. Basically, we, we were given the project to make the CD-ROM game ourselves, and then we had to turn to external development to get the other versions made. So, I mean, you know, you, you're, you're talking about the the Sega CD or the Mega CD version, mm-hmm. but there was also, you know, there was a, a Genesis, Stroke, Mega Drive. I never understood why they were given different names. There was a Super Nintendo version. There was even a, a, a Game Boy version. Believe it or not, I don't know if you know that. Did you Did you know there was a Game Boy? No, oh, no, I didn't. I I, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I knew there was the other versions
2: because they're. Straight up platformers without any video or anything like that in them, aren't they? Uh,
3: yeah, it was kind. Of, it was kind of difficult to get mm. compressed full motion video on on those particular yeah, yeah. platforms. But you know, it's not it's not our fault, right? The, the Game Boy just <laughs> wasn't up to it. <laughs> <laughs> we, we tried it, but the cartridge was two foot high and three feet wide, so, it was,
0: <laughs> so what, you would not get the CD-ROM drive on the uh, on the back of the Game Boy, were you?
3: <laughs> I would have tried if somebody would have paid for it. <laughs> so. Um, so when we were putting it on CD-ROM, we were getting some rushes from the from the actual movie. We got to go meet with uh, with Fred Fuchs and the production team. Uh, we had a meeting down at Pinewood Studios, which was which was phenomenal, right? We we went down in 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 two cars. There were I think there were eight of us or something, and I can't remember who exactly who was there, but uh, and of course you know it was my project, right? So so. Sony had we we'd done a deal we'd signed a deal I'd signed a deal with Rich Robinson I had the deal in our pocket we got everybody together we planned it out and uh, and off we went and uh, but we uh, it it dawned on us that we uh, we had I think we had eight months left right before before it was going to go out right and uh, when we went down to Pinewood we thought we'd be going on set and they were still filming it but they weren't they were already done right and they were working on some other stuff and so they just set aside a screening room, showed us some of the rushes, which looked fantastic, by the way, even from the rushes, right? That movie was beautiful. I mean, I'm sure you've seen it, right? Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, not for a long time, but yeah, I remember it being visually very oh
3: Stunning, right? I mean, you know, to be fair, Francis Ford Coppola... Not bad at what he does. Let's be honest. Hey, he's done a couple of um, films. Apocalypse Now. Stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just a few. Yeah. Um So so uh, so off we went. Uh, you know, sketchbooks out. Everyone's got pads. Everyone's like, you know, going okay. So you know, we we asked if we could have if we could record it, and that was met with a very firm no. So we asked if we could have copies of it, and that was met with a very firm no. I yeah uh, I asked them if we were in Pinewood or British Nuclear Fuels because the level of secrecy around the thing was in nuts right it was insane and we had to sign like forms and release forms and all kinds of stuff and like they're super super paranoid about it um but anyway so we got as much information together as we could and we went back and we were like okay what, what can we do so uh, eventually they we we worked through the back channels and they relented and Sony sent us uh, some some tapes of uh, some of the rushes and some of the footage so. We wanted to digitize it and compress it. Um, now by this time, you know, we were, we, we were already, you know, a a dab hand at that. And, and we discussed that mm. in, the, in the last episode that, you know, it was, it was a case of wanting to make movies and being frustrated movie makers. And I'll tell you some of the faces of some of the people who were on that trip, going into Pinewood to the actual studios and going into like the, the proper sound stages. They were like, it, it, it was like, they'd visited Mecca or something. They were, Oh, oh, oh. the real was, deal. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, we saw the, we saw the, uh, the, 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 Bond Bond um, soundstage as well. You know, the one that was the biggest one in the world at the time. Yeah. It was, you know it was built for one of the Bond movies, it was a submarine base or something. Was that for Goldeneye or one of
2: It's the one before Goldeneye. Uh is it licensed to kill?
3: Whoa, someone's a bit of an expert there, aren't they? Little-
2: it's the one with Timothy Dalton. I know that much. If because it, it would be around about ninety two. Yeah, I Joe. I, I think you're protesting
3: <laughs> too heavily there, my friend. I I'm not even a Bond fan. A very,
0: very of course.
3: Listen, it's okay. You can you can talk to me, I'm here for you. Don't worry <laughs> about it. It's all right. No one's no one's judging you except for everybody who's listening to this podcast. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so so they, we got to see, you know, getting to see it's kind of, it's like, I mean, it was like a big aircraft hangar with a big swimming pool in it, right? And I was like, oh, big deal, right? Uh, but they cleverly made it to, and yeah, sorry, I'm getting into too much detail. <laughs> so so, so, <laughs> <laughs> so we, we <laughs> well, that's all right, you guys can edit. You know it how to edit.
0: Show's editing an hour, yeah. <laughs> I'd like to give you a challenge.
3: So, uh, so yeah, so we had all that stuff. So we started digitizing stuff and then there was discussions about, you know, there was 3d storyboards going on and it was like, well, you know, we can go along this level and you know, this wall falls down and pillars fall down and things come and attack you and you're trying to get through it. And, but we were trying really hard to make a game out of Dracula and, you know, beyond a, a text or a graphic adventure, it's Pretty bloody difficult, right? I mean, you know, there's a lot of action in that movie, but it's kind of like okay. So we had to go, you know, the sideways scrolling and the 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 you know the first person driving, which you know driving a horse carriage and all that stuff. And and so long since I played the game, Uh, I can't remember what made it in and what didn't make it in. But we were trying lots of different things with lots of different engines because that's all we could do. We had to go with the engines we had, right? And then the video stuff when we digitized it and we started running it and then we put it on the palette on the mega CD, oh, it just looked appalling, right? It it looked like you were watching a, a movie through a bag of granola with like some with glaucoma, right? That was like that was that,
0: it was, now, how many colors was that? Was it like thirty two colors or
3: something? At, at tops, yeah, tops. <laughs> yeah, I think we had two planes, 16. so it might have been sixteen split, right? So oh, which doesn't help you, right? <laughs> like like oh, I well, know. <laughs> and um, but then you know and it was like okay well we're too far in we got to do it now we have to do some of this stuff right so i some of the stuff that that didn't work was actually really really good there was some great camera positioning and you know if everybody had a had a silicon graphics at home that game would have looked mm-hmm. fantastic right but, <laughs> but unfortunately <laughs> they didn't uh, so when you took it off the sg and you put it on the sega cd which rhymes nicely by the way doesn't it and um, there was a a a noticeable difference but we had to push on, right? We have to go on, right? Um so they did we did some uh, we did some uh rotoscoping or uh, what do we, what do we call it when it, when it's the when you digitize somebody walking and running and jumping. Yeah that's
0: a rotoscope yeah like it's rotoscoping, right? Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah.
3: I thought was was the old fashioned. Uh, yeah it was rotoscoping, right? So get this, right? Believe it or not, the guy who is. There's two of them who are head of Fire Sprite, so I think it's uh, is it Graham and Graham and Lee. So Lee Karras was the he is actually the character that you see in the game. So oh wow, yeah right. So so Lee uh, and you know Lee's fantastic, brilliant guy. He's so much fun, and Lee's always like yeah, I'll do it, I'll do it right because you know he's great artist, really talented, uh, great eye for for design. But, you know, if, if there was something that needed to be done, he was that guy that would just step forward and go, all right, I'll do it, right, you know. So, and because it needed some, like, uh, martial arts moves and stuff, so they did it. They were him and put him in, and he was doing his high kicks and his like karate kicks and his chops and stuff. And so he became the main character that was walking along. Keanu Reeves wasn't available that day. Then uh, we asked him, and uh, he was like, "Dude, no way! I got to get in this phone box." So we were, like, we were like, "Awesome!" And he was like, "Excellent." No, it, 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 yeah, I don't, I don't think so. Actually, you know what? I did, I did get, I did meet Keanu Reeves. And you know when people say he's like the nicest guy in the world? True,
0: he always looks nice when you see him. On, you know, oh. I was, I was so worried you were going
3: to say he's not nice then. <laughs> oh, no, no, be, that would be a better story, wouldn't it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Slammed the trailer door in my face and farted at me. Ah, oh, he was horrible. No, it, uh, no, he's he really, really lovely, a sweetheart man, right? I the same cannot be said for a winner and a rider.
0: Oh, oh, really?
3: Mm. So, man, approvals were a problem for sure but that's right. that's later down in the story but the irony of it is she she got nabbed for shoplifting a couple of days later in beverly hills didn't she? yes mm, <laughs> I, <remember that.
0: laughs>
3: I was not upset about calmer, that story for you <laughs> that's okay i've heard i've heard winona ryder speaks very highly of me <laughs> so yeah. we had to put it together as quick and uh, as best as we could and you know the technology worked and from a tech point of view it worked really well but as a game it was a sideways mm-hmm. scroller with something that we tried to put in that had really spectacular full motion backdrops and that didn't work out because the hardware let us down it uh, looked good on the FM mm-hmm. towns but of course not a huge market right but uh, there was some there were some great ideas in there but I think from a development point of view there was a lot of knowledge that was gained from it it was like okay don't go in unless you've got the engine prepped unless you've got the stuff laid out unless you're designed fully unless you plan- unless you've got it really planned out. You know, working on mm. intellectual properties is, is a is a difficult thing, right? And it was kind of like, okay, uh, now yeah, next time, next time. But you know, so we were okay. They were like, okay, you know, first one, we'll give them a mulligan, and it's like, let's go again. Of course, the next two they brought us were uh, No Escape and Cliffhanger, which was like, mm. oh man, seriously, seriously, you're not you're not giving it, you're not making it any easier, guys, right? I don't know. Do you guys remember those movies? Yeah, I remember. No I, Cliffhanger. I'm,
2: Cliffhanger. I'm familiar with. There's No Escape, the one with um. Oh, what's his name? Ray, Ray Is it Ray Uh Yeah, and uh, yeah. and
3: the guy the guy who was in uh, Millennium. Uh, um, uh, it's the one on the pla- in the prison on the planet, uh, the yeah, forest yeah, planet. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 That could have yeah. been a really good game actually, if only they yeah. told us twelve months earlier. <laughs> I mean, but that's that. That was always that fight, right? And and you were last in yeah. line because you know yeah. you were you were part of the whole overall, you know, additional marketing strategy. The movie makers didn't care about you. They, the studios didn't care about you. They were like, uh, okay, you know, corporate us We've got to give you this stuff, and you, we've got to help you. So here you go, right? Mm. So I, I ended up on the on the set of Men in Black with uh, with uh, with John Burton, actually, of all people. And, and, oh wow <laughs> well because they got us involved earlier so we started to mm. get access to going on the sets and being on the move i was on the set of fifth element um oh wow yeah and i met uh Millie, age, yeah, who is who is just stunningly beautiful right she just walked out at the back of one of the sets with a with a dressing gown on with that like she had that crazy flame hair going on yeah the, the orange hair yeah oh my god she was just drop dead gorgeous she didn't said hello and said hi and stuff so it was really nice we didn't get to meet bruce willis which which most of us That's- were relieved about. Well, I did get to see Gary Oldman again, which was a laugh. So, yeah, uh, because I met Gary when we were on uh, Dracula, Dracula and then you yeah. gave, So, uh, but yeah, so so you know it was a, it was a good exercise. And then we went on to those next couple of titles, but you know we weren't renowned for our um, for our movie tie ins, were we? Let's be honest. So let's talk about a game that you were more renowned for. Let's talk
2: about <laughs> let's talk about Wipeout. So Wipeout got a sequel, another sequel in 1997. Yeah. What do you remember about Wipeout XL? Uh,
3: I think from the beginning, it was it, the whole thing was you know more, bigger, better, right? Mm. Um, and and that 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 product was born in a time of chaos. PlayStation was in full swing. You know, we we come out of the gate with with some lineup titles that were you know they they were phenomenal, right? You know, the games were phenomenal. The marketing was phenomenal. I mean, if you look at Wipeout and, and Destruction Derby and you know, you you you're kind of looking at them going, well, you know what, <laughs> not bad, right? You know, it was, like, you know, and 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 Wipeout, I think, was responsible for ho- for opening a whole new market sector. You know, and and, and and Nick Berkham, he was always together with Mike Ellis as well, right? So I think Mike was involved. So, but what they did was they took the best elements of you know Formula One, uh, F Zero. They loved F Zero on the on the Nintendo, right? You, f-zero it was fantastic do, do you remember that you guys must remember that right? yeah 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 yeah, of course, yeah 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 really good and so it was kind of like well let's combine them and throw some weapons in there and let's uh, let's go that route i think mario kart i think the first mario kart was out by then as well wasn't it yeah it would have been yeah
2: because so mario was, kart
3: mario kart was yeah. also super popular so you you start to look at those and it's like okay i love those things right so and that kind of morphed into wipeout with the designers Republic and the really cool graphics and, and the music element of it was phenomenal, right? Because, you know, everyone was into EDM as it's now known, but like, you know, rave dance, culture music, yeah. and dance music as yeah. it was known then. Right. Mm-hmm. So yeah. And, I mean, and it, it was, it was an interesting space, right? You know, some of us were more into the ambient side and we like, you know, orbital and the orb and then others were more, you know, prodigy and like <laughs> high energy dancing all night without any chemical assistance, I'm led to believe. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so so that was kind of the template was set, right? It was unique, unique and original, and 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 it was really different. And then the, the 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 big bands that got involved actually went on to bigger and better things off the back of it. But what we did inadvertently was we made video gaming cool with the clubber generation, right? Mm-hmm. So you know the mm-hmm. people from eighteen to twenty five who like to go out on a Friday and Saturday night and. Spend their money, and you know, and then you had the the, the birth of the super clubs, didn't you? you? Had the you know, you had Cream and the Ministry of Sound, and you know, it was yeah, yeah. Old, it, was, it was just phenomenal, right? And so it, that zeitgeist, we just captured it at the at the right time, at the right moment. And so, and I even remember
0: seeing Playstations in clubs, you know, where you could play Wipeout and Wipeout. That's right, yeah, and, in
3: back rooms yeah. and stuff. Yeah. well, that was that was <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. that was the marketing department at, uh, <laughs> at at Sony Europe, right? And they they were right into it as well. They did a great job as well and mm. um, but yeah you know it it was more better bigger they had better machines we had more artists we had more programmers so the engine got improved you know it was it was an incremental success in and of the product itself the template was set you know it couldn't fail right it just couldn't fail right it had an audience waiting for it all they had to do was get the music right get the tracks right get the graphics right have enough of an extended you know range of weapons and and interchanges for it to be exciting and it would work right and so but but it went from a you know a keen you know 15 man team to a huge sprawling multi-divisional large production effort and i think that was that that game was right in the heart of the transition from the bedroom coders who became you know do it yourself warriors who became Semi-professional game producers who became actual professional game producers, and then moving it into that more corporate structure and that more uh, defined, regimented kind Mm. of kind of structure. So I think you got better quality product and better quality results, but the trade-off was that like the the kind of the fun part of it and the excitement part of it was kind of sucked out of it a little bit, right? Does that guy does that make sense to you guys? Is that Yeah, 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 yeah totally. So yeah. so when you when when you talk about wipeout, you know, it makes you smile because you think of all of the great stuff that went on around it and the trial and error and you know people working till three o'clock in the morning and, and just trying to do, you know, l- listed to the whooshing sound as those deadlines flew by, right? <laughs> it was hilarious. But then when it comes to something like this, it was more of a formulaic spreadsheet driven execution. And it was like, okay, be spontaneous now. And it was okay. You can have fun for twenty-seven minutes now, but then you must get back to it and be <laughs> really serious, right? right. Yeah, 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 And so that's a cultural difference. And I think for for a number of people that caused some rotation, right? Some people were like, okay, I'm done with this. I'm out. And and they just literally rotated out, right? They were like, and you would think, why are you doing this, right? You you, you know, you, you've worked so hard to get here. Why are you doing this, right? The the guys who like kind of were older, hardcore, less transitional, more having a laugh and enjoying it. They were the ones who were heading towards the exit. And the guys who were looking to the brighter future and wanted to sell more product and wanted to shift more product kind of were more malleable and flexible and could kind of work within that system and go, okay, this is this is what we do now. This is who we are now, right? I mean, it was, you know, you had the record labels involved, you had Sony music involved, you had rights issues, you had lawyers, you had, there was a whole host of stuff so you know the design, you know Nick and the, Nick and the boys and, and and you know there's a few other guys. They got to choose some of the stuff that they wanted, uh, and then they also had Tim, uh, kind of curating from 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 the from the content. Tim and Mike were they were kind of curators and then making the additional soundtracks that would fit in between and doing their thing. And they were doing a great job, right? They did some yeah, yeah, amazing right. music so and, and still do, mm-hmm. right? They still, I don't know, if you go on SoundCloud, you know, Tim, Tim Wright and, and, and Mike Clark still release amazing tracks from time to time, right?
0: Well, Mike Clark actually does the intro music to this podcast. Is that
3: right? Um, oh, yeah, how about the, the, that? A
0: custom track just for us.
3: Yeah. God, it's difficult. You know, these guys are, you know, they're fully badged up, f- successful, had a wonderful long career and stuff. But for some of them, that it's still stuck in your head that these are just like young, enthusiastic guys who are like, in their early twenties just making their way and having a laugh. Right? It's it's really strange, you know. I see pictures of right frozen now.
0: in time in your memory.
3: Yeah, I know, right? It, but it's true. That's exactly what happens, right? You know? And and I think we all I think we all get to twenty five and then it just freezes there, doesn't it? That's where you know that's where your head stays, right? It doesn't matter how many years you put on. I think my
0: my head, my head stopped around fourteen, I think. I
3: don't know <laughs> 14. Bless you. That's see. That's why you like retro. Good for you. Yeah, but that's the fun people. That's the fun people of this world. Mature is just another word for boring. And I keep telling my kids that, right? Because they're appalled at exactly. my behaviour, right? So, um, but 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 yeah. So so and that was kind of the way it went. It was like okay, you know, we've got cool music. We can get what we want. We can get who we like. You know, someone else is writing the check. It doesn't really matter but make it cool make it brilliant make it great and then you know marketing has a hand in it and they say what they want and that kind of skews it and changes it a little bit and then the whole release schedule gets into it and it kind of it did change it did become a much more corporate and formulaic event you know i, I can't speak to the content of the game because it speaks for itself it's still great it's still brilliant it's still wonderful it did well and um, but when you're uh, when you're involved in the creation and the development and the production uh, as well as, you know, the sales and the marketing and the licensing, you, you, it, it doesn't give you as warm and fuzzy a feeling. It, it really, now I think about it, and I am just thinking about it now, it was a super transitional product, right? That was, that was moving into the world of large-scale development rather than, you know, niche, exciting and interesting stuff. What we call AAA today, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Originally, you were making an A-quality game, right? Then it was like A because it was like put so much effort in. And yeah. then it became all corporate and structured and spreadsheet-driven and, spreadsheet and timeline-driven. And then it was AAA because it was pristine and fantastic. But, you know, but then, you know, you still had ones that got away from the crowd, didn't you? You know, it was always a laugh when you'd see ones that were, uh, you know, forever being on the release schedule and pulled off again, right, Which is which was great, right? So, so someti- sometimes they would call the uh, the development studio the business prevention department, and that was kind <laughs> of thing, well. Well, speaking
2: of business prevention, Cygnosis um, was still releasing games on the Sega Saturn. Was there <laughs> was there any was there any pressure? Like, was there a lot of pressure to, just to be just to go PlayStation only? What was that like?
3: Well, I, I, so the genuine story behind it is uh, is that. We were acquired as a software company, right? Mm. So when Cygnosis was acquired, it wasn't acquired under the auspices of becoming a giant first party studio. It was a software company, right? Mm. With its own publishing license, its own publishing arm and publishing in sectors that Sony were we're not we're not gonna go into, right? That weren't gonna touch, right? So you know, Sony were already in the cartridge market and then they were building the console market, right? Why would why would they wanna release anything on a on a PC or or a Game Boy or a, another competitor's machine right yeah uh, but i you know from from jonathan ellison Ian hedrington and oh can we can we have a quick moment about ian hedrington so you guys know do you know that ian passed away did you know that ian died
0: yeah very sad not not long ago was it yeah yeah
3: not not, not long ago at all it was it was um yeah. he, he i think he'd had a a, a liver illness and and he, he passed he, he passed away very quickly uh and, and and it was a shock. It was a shock for us. But uh, I, I was deeply upset by it, so much so that, you know, mm. I, I couldn't post anything or say anything about it um, because the man was just wonderful. He mm. changed the face of gaming and gaming production and what was possible in video games in the UK. And I don't know if a lot of people know how significant he was or what a hand he had in a lot of the products that a lot of people played. But... He was the guy who just loved, he loved developers. He loved coders. He loved artists. He loved designers. He loved the creative process. He loved the whole aspect behind it and he embraced it and he supported it and he protected it. So if it wasn't for Ian Hetherington, a lot of us, myself included, would never have got to do some of the amazing things we did and make some of the amazing things we did because he was the guy who would say, all right, go on. If you think you can do it, go ahead and do it. Of course, he'd kick your ass if he didn't, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. But he would give you the shot, and he would he would help you to do it. And uh, so, a, a lot of people owe him a great deal. But I haven't really said anything about it up to date. But I feel as though I should now because I'm talking about him and I'm thinking about him. And yeah. you know, he was he was uh, he was like everybody's extra dad. And that's what I said that to Nick Beckham. We just I just direct messaged him and I said, you know, it just it just feels like everybody's extra dad. And, and what I mean by that, and I don't know if you guys will understand it, but just somebody in your life that has that that kind of warm and safe and and fuzzy feeling that a parent gives you. But, you know, you're just working for him, right? It's really strange. It's mm-hmm. hard to explain. But but Nick Nick came back to me and said, Yeah, you know what? That that's right on the, that's right on the nail. That is right. He was everybody's extra. Daddy. You don't
0: get relationships like that very often, do you? No, rare. no,
3: not at all. And you know, in the in the industry these days, I mean, like, you know, we, we just had a seven. What it was, it uh, seventy billion dollar acquisition announced.
2: Yeah, of Activision, yeah. Uh, yeah. Blizzard, and everything, yeah. isn't it for Microsoft? Oh
3: my, really? Like as if you could have imagined that in like nineteen ninety four, right? Yeah, it wasn't even that much money in the industry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, uh, So, uh, so okay, let's wind up. Let's let's rewind. Right. So, so from from uh, talking about Ian and and Jonathan, right? Jo- Multi
0: platform, you said. Jo- yes. uh,
3: Jonathan Ellis. You know, those guys were they were responsible for synopsis right? They were acquired, mm-hmm. but they had an earn out clause and they had a buyout clause, and neither of those guys were we at the back of the queue when brains were handed out, right? So they knew that they wanted to continue and pursue the publishing aspect of the company because it was a value generator. It was a revenue generator. And they also knew that if they became a first party mainstream production group, then there would be no need for the huge publishing arm that would be subsumed into Sony and they would lose, you know, a lot of really talented people and a lot of great business mm. Um, because they just gave it over to the corporate monster, and and I and I think they were very brave because they were they were smart enough to know that like getting on board with Year Zero with a new machine that had a chance to dominate the world, which it did do, and they had a big hand in that. It it also it, it gave them a, a, a side bet to to keep the really talented and great people who actually brought them to that point and 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 give them you know a working opportunity to go forward. So, you know, all the people in marketing, all the people in publishing, all the people who who, who sit in the, you know, the accounts department, all the people who work in PR, all the people who work in QA, you know, nobody thinks about like those huge numbers of people who who are there to facilitate, you know, the programmers and artists and designers, right? And and Mm. you you kinda, it's a very easy thing to miss, right? But they didn't wanna do that. So they wanted to keep the publishing arm alive and their agreement in their buyout was that, you know, Cygnosis would still be, you know, a label. It would still be an independent publisher in quotes, right? A wholly owned subsidiary is what we say today, right? And it would still, you know, follow its own aims and, and directives. And uh, and it was like, Sony were like, okay, fine. If you want to publish some PC games or some FM Towns games or some 8-bit stuff, or the amstrad knock yourself out right we don't we don't care right you know mm. you can carry on working with the amiga the st you can you know that's fine we're never going to touch that go ahead what i think they didn't ever suspect was that competitive markets would open uh, against the playstation as the playstation rose and rose and rose right so sega did the did the saturn and then, and then of course the, the the most forgotten and most wonderful console of all time right the dreamcast right mm, yeah yeah. i mean it was like Amazing oh, i know right what a peep into the future that was peter moore strikes again right um mm. yeah i mean it was like okay was, jonathan and ian were like okay well you know you're, you're licensing and, and you're you know working with the with the with the products and stuff and i was wearing so many hats at the time i didn't know what day it was and they were like you know go ahead keep Licensing it, and I was like, okay, so I worked with my agent and uh, we did a big deal with SoftBank, that was a multi title deal. And then, of course, we, you know, we did the direct deal with, with Sega when, when Andy Mee was there, right? With <laughs> and, and I think we talked about the Bank's TT in the last episode, didn't we? <laughs> we were talking yeah, yeah, and we were actually converting, we were actually using some of our external development resources because we had so much, we had so many developers that we were using some of those resources to help Sega get their first party product finished and done and published. And then taking, you know, ancillary rights and a cut off the back of it, right? So, you know, we we actually got uh, Max TT for the Sega Saturn, developed, uh, I think that that was Leon Walters, who who was my producer uh, in my team, uh, running the guys at Tantalus over in Australia. And like, you know, Mm -hmm. nobody would ever know that like a, a first, an external development team that was actually contracted to Sony made that Sega game, right? I don't, in fact, I don't think Sony even knows to this day that happened. <laughs> Whoops. Yeah, it's too late now. Who's going to action it, right? Nobody, nobody's know. left anymore, right? <laughs> they're all, they're all ghosts in an empty cavern, right? So yeah, so we, we, I went ahead and did, it. I went ahead and did some deals. I did the SoftBank deal, which was a 10 title deal. Uh, and uh, that was when, you know, SonSan was a, was just a lowly multimillionaire and uh and he was great, actually. He was fantastic, and and SoftBank were were a great company. I mean, they've gone on to be a just a massive industry giant now, right? Just a huge player across the globe. And um, but they were they were a lot of fun. They were really good. Actually, I'll tell you. I'll tell you. Shall so I tell you a story about when I was licensing those products in Japan? Because it's just come to me now. So yeah, go for I, it. I, I was over there, and we had meetings. We had meetings with like uh, with Namco, with Konami. With SoftBank, with I mean, like all, all the all the major players uh, in in the Japanese market, and of course, you know, I had an in with them, and I knew them, and you know, they knew us from the FM Towns demo on side. and you know, we were we were a niche cool company over there, and I, of course, I brought a videotape with what we were making for the PlayStation, and the early versions of Wipeout and Destruction Derby uh, were on there. Lemmings was on there. So I was showing these videotapes and going around them all and uh, Imagineer was one of them. Colin Palmer is a good friend of mine. He worked at Imagineer and I've known Colin for years. Colin went on to join Nintendo and now I think he's the managing director of the Pokemon company, um, Oh wow! believe it or not. Yeah, Colin. Colin's a great guy. was always a great guy, really good product guy. But he was, you know, young, fresh-faced and he was working for Imagineer. Do you guys know where Imagineer are? You ever heard that name?
2: I just keep thinking of Disney, yeah, but again, I know it's not that. Yeah.
3: <laughs> well, the representative... Uh, from the UK for Imagineer was a Mr. Gary Williams, right? Okay. Uh, he he of sold out fame, right? Who is doing phenomenally mm-hmm. well, and and he's a fabulous. Gary's a fabulous guy. He's so much fun, right? But there's always an ongoing uh, needle match between us just for fun, uh, which stems from the fact that he was there in that room uh, working for Imagineer looking at the screen while Wipeout was running on a videotape as a render from a silicon graphics machine. And I'm telling you, without a shadow of a doubt, right, you just look at it for like 30 seconds and you knew that thing was going to be a monster. It was fantastic, right? And I was trying to spin up a bidding war and uh, Gary stepped up and said, yeah, I don't think we'll be uh, we'll be doing anything with that. I don't think we'll participate in that because that's just all flashy graphics from a silicon graphics machine and that game will never be successful and will never do well. And I just oh, wow. I just kinda looked at him and I was like, Okay. Uh, well, this is awkward, but it's time to leave. So I left and then when it had been number one, it was a smash hit and everything. We came back to him and I saw him at a I think it was a A three an A three or something, and I was like, Hey, Gary. Good call on the success of wipeout, mate. And, and he was like, he was like, oh, I just died, died every time, you know. Like, I'm like, he's like, I was so sorry after that because like it was really bad. But I, and he said, but I'll tell you what, it's really funny, right? And I was like, oh god, it's hilarious. So we we went on and became friends after that. But uh, yeah, so uh, so as far as wipeout and wipeout XL and and the seventy nine thousand other iterations of wipeout goes. The man who turned down the Beatles was Gary Williams, yeah. and I'm naming <laughs> that. So, hey, this is just, just to circle back and top of tell that on the end of the question about uh, publishing on multiple formats and publishing on the Sega Saturn, it was kind of like, okay, well, we're still a publisher and we still generate revenue and we are going to do this and we have every right to do it. Now, Sony weren't happy, and I think they tried to apply some pressure, but I think Jonathan and Ian were like, you know what? we we got a 5 year now and we got to do as much as we can do so this is what we're doing so everybody got to work on all the stuff and i think the agreement they had was that no internal development would work on a different development system it was always uh, external development it was always third parties that would do the conversions for us and i and i think that was the, that was where the the agreement of that came from and i think that was okay right because it was kind of a pass through deal but for us we still wanted to get our games on as many platforms as possible with as many players as possible but they were they were okay with it right they, there wasn't any animosity behind the scenes it was like oh okay you know what you're a label you do your own thing you do your own stuff and then we had a lot of fun with it right we had a lot of fun with with the saturn and, and you know andy me and, and the stuff they were doing we even did a deal with microsoft do you guys know about that no no tell us so about that. so this was uh, when microsoft was setting up their games division which you know Obviously, as we mentioned earlier, <laughs> they've kind of made a big splash now. But uh, this was back in the days of like Ed Freeze and Ed Ventura, Pete Bergstrom, Rob Linsley was Rob there, I think. Rob Linsley might have been there at that time. Uh, they wanted to. They were doing that nascent games division. There was a there was a a little known hardware guy in the background called Kevin Backus. You you may have heard of him now. Um, <laughs> so so uh, they were you know unbeknownst to us they were planning a console of their own we're already very successful in the PC games arena. So, you know, you had Age of Empires and there was the Monolith games. There was a, there was a couple of other games. And so they wanted to do a deal. And uh, I was like, I worked with Pete and we got a deal put together. So we, we signed a three title deal with Microsoft to bring their top PC properties onto the PlayStation. That proved to be more problematic than you would imagine. Uh, so I had, I had a meeting with the with the guys uh, who, who did uh, who did Age of Empires and uh, and um, and another set of guys who did the, what was the game? They did a racing game thing, and they were out in uh, in Berlin. We had we had a meeting in the house in Potsdam in Berlin, where Winston Churchill, Joseph Stalin, and uh, Eisenhower, or no uh, Roosevelt. They all signed that agreement where they carved up Europe and created the Iron Curtain and all that stuff. That was the same house on the same oh, step. Wow. We stood on those steps, and between the three of us, like the guy who was the head of development, Pete Bergstrom and myself, we recreated the picture of those illustrious leaders of World War II uh, shaking hands. And it wasn't the same, uh, but, it, but it was an interesting place to go to. And I mean, an, it was. And, yeah, and then the history. Well, another thing that happened was, uh, was uh, we were doing the Nintendo version of Formula One. And, uh, we, uh, we, we went down and presented it to Nintendo and they really liked it and they wanted to sign a deal with us. And there was a, I mean, the, the, the price that we made them pay for it, we spun it up ridiculously. Right. It was terrible. I, even I felt bad about it and I don't usually feel bad about asking for large sums of money on deals, but, um, it was going ahead, but we got the tables turned on us when we went back to, uh, to renegotiate the rights, cause I bought the rights from Fuji TV. Uh, but we only had them for the last year of Formula They, are, they were in their last year of their rights for, for Formula 1. So we got it for a song. Uh, I bought <laughs> I bought the rights to Formula 1 for a year for 250 grand. Oh, wow. And, and if you know anything about anything, right, that was an absolute steal. And mm. um, so when the renegotiation for the license went back for the next iterations of Formula 1, I um, actually got to meet with Bernie Eccleston himself, who in an ironic twist of fate is a lot smaller in real life than he seems on the TV. <laughs> Cause you know, they always say people are, yeah. So, so he, he sat there, and I think they wanted like 32 million or something for it. Right. And I was like, Oh my goodness. Right. I was just like, okay, you know, let's, let's just walk away from the table. Right. This is ridiculous. Right. And I got really annoyed at him. And, uh, and he, and I, and I said, <laughs> I said to him, Benny, you should be ashamed of yourself. This is just so much money, and a ridiculous change of set of circumstances. You are an absolute crook for doing this. And he looked me right in the eye, and he said, "I'm not a crook. I'm a really good businessman. And you have made a lot of money off Formula One over the last eighteen months. So it's time to pay up." And I was like, "Oh, okay." <laughs> <Ooh."> oh, god! <laughs> and really, I like he looked at you. Like the look he gave me is like, if you say anything more, I will kill you. And I really believed that he would as well, right? I could see why he was like kind of feared and respected, right? So what I did tell- Icy stare. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I told Bernie right to his face. He was a crook, right? And he just didn't even blink, right? He was like, nope, I'm a good businessman. And I was like, all right, I can't really argue with that, right? So, but yeah. So anyway, so anyway, but anyway now we'll circle back to circling back.
2: Yeah, so I, I was going to ask about Code Name Tanker. And obviously it was a great game, creepy first person shooter. Um, and obviously, everybody was kind of like dipping their finger, you know, in that FPS
3: genre at the time. What memories do you kind of have of that game? So, uh, Tenko was kind of it was uh, we we did a did we talk last time? Did we talk last time about the Blade Runner demo? Ooh, I don't think we did. Oh, okay. So, so oh, this is it, it's amazing how all these titles link into such much bigger <laughs> ecosystems all around them, right? So, uh, and and now you tell me about that, it reminds me of like how that came about, right? So we we were. I, I was looking for for licensed properties um, quite actively to to bring in stuff that I wanted to do that was you know personal favorites that I think would be fantastic as a video game. Blade Runner was one of them, and mm. we ignited a conversation with the, with Blade Runner, and it, it turns out that it, the the rights for the movie were not with Ridley Scott and were not with the production company. They were with a, an actual created company called the Blade Runner Foundation. Okay, and and it was kind of like. It was quite shocking because, uh, you know, the history of Blade Runner, when it came out, it was a flop, right? Nobody wanted to see it. Nobody watched it, but it found its audience and then became a huge success on video and then became a massive, massive landmark sci-fi movie, right? It it was a white elephant when it was first launched, but it eventually went on to be one of the most influential and groundbreaking sci-fi movies of all time, right? Yeah. And so they set up a company... That, that was dealing with the rights for it, which had like cut out the studio and everybody else. It was a really weird kind of property that was floating in space and you had to do a deal with them. And so I approached them because we had all this technology and all this stuff. And I was like, what, you know, what could be better for the PlayStation than coming out with that? Right. You know, what a, what a beautiful parallel that would be. Right. W- would you have played Blade Runner on the PlayStation?
2: Oh, yeah. Got 100%. Yeah.
3: 100%. So, so, uh, so I went and pursued it and got after it. And then, you Know as things happen, those guys also decided to look into the rest of the market and see who else would be interested in taking the license for a video game. Um, and unfortunately for us, Virgin were riding high and being very successful at the time. Um, so but uh, but but I remember we, we did a demo for, for the PlayStation that had uh, it had the spinner in it, so it had the you know, the the, the car, the, the flying car, and the the guy gets in and it's first person perspective and the guy it closes, the thing closes and it takes off and it flies up and then it flies out at a giant landscape. And I know, you know, if you, you look at the beginning of Blade Run and you see that huge landscape with all the industrial pipes and the oil refineries and the big flame mm. going up. And then you see the Tyrell corporation, right? Which is those giant pyramids. Right. And yeah. so the, the spinner flies up, flies around those and then comes out at you and you take control facing down towards like oil refineries with giant uh, flames coming out of them and the Tyrell Corporation in the distance. And you can fly all the way to the Tyrell Corporation and fly around it. And yeah. then you can see uh, Rachel Young in the window and you can see it. You can actually see it. If you find it, you can see it. So, I mean, this thing was amazing. It was just brilliant, right? And it was, it was on the original demo kit of the PlayStation. But the Blade Runner Foundation, you know, I presented to them in, in the Sony building on Fifth Avenue in New York. We had this. We had the, we had the the demo system there with us. Ian had flown over for it. We did it. We presented it. We did it. They loved it. They loved what we were pitching. They loved what we were doing. And we were going to do a proper recreation of Blade Runner with, you know, driving, flying, first person action adventure. Would have been amazing. Would have been incredible. And then Virgin came back over the top of us, and I think they put down like two and a half million or something. It was ridiculous, right? It was a a crazy amount of money. And they were like, you know what? We'd love to do it with you, but we're just going to take the money from Virgin. And then Virgin did like some crappy RTS strategy. Oh no, what have you done to Blade Runner, right? Oh my God, what have you done? Um, But it opened up an avenue that Crazy Ivan uh, came through there, you know, giant robots, moving stuff around, first person perspective, uh, you know, and Tenka was... uh, Neil Thompson was uh, Neil Thompson's a, a very talented and wonderful artist. I was a very dear friend of mine. In fact, Neil and Neil Thompson and Dave Worrell and I we had a band together out of uh, Insignosis called Midian. and mm. it was an electronic band in the early, early days. Right, we used to practice yeah. in the office. B- believe it or not, right? And um, and so it, it was one of the things that he was really. But but Neil was like kind of a collector. He liked uh, he liked you know Kurosawa. And he liked Japanese cinema, and he liked Akira, and he liked anime, and he liked really dark filthy horror movies right everything that was banned in 1984 Neil was all over that right you know the burning (laughs) and like the the New York Ripper and and like he you know he loved this stuff to to a disturbing level I think really now I look back (laughs) on it but so that kind of you know you say oh it was dark and dystopian it was disturbing it was well you know guess which mind that came from right so that, that, that kind of comes out. And I think you raise an interesting point that a lot of original games do reflect the personality and mind of the people who actually create them, right?
0: Thinking of that first interview we did, you know, um, two years ago now where we went from like, you know, your early days in Cygnosis, now we're going through like the 90s. And, you know, it, it changed so much even in that decade. And I mean, thinking of your story, I mean, where, where did it kind of end at Cygnosis for you then? And what, why did you leave? When were you there until? What kind of happened there?
3: Uh, yeah. So, how did it end? So, this is how it ended, um, and these are my recollections. My recollections, right? So, your your view of what happened is your truth, right? So, no, no, nobody really knows the full story or what really went on behind it, but it's your view. So, this is my view of what happened. I was uh, working between Los Angeles, Tokyo, and Wavertree Technology Park in the UK, and. I was running like a maniac uh, 24-7. I was keeping all the U.S. stuff going and keeping all the U.S. stuff alive because that was a huge source of opportunity and uh, intellectual property and uh, sheer size of market, right? So, uh, and, and, and I didn't want to give up the, the whole thing with, uh, with L.A. and working with the studios and working with Sony Music because you know, it was cool, man. It was really good. And so um, I, I had my, my, my life back in the UK. Uh, you know, I was, I, I was with an established partner at that time. Uh, we were living together. Uh, we were talking about getting married. It was, you know, it was that time. And um, so we were, we'd been together for like five years. And, and so I was like, okay, you know what? Real life is catching up with me. Because if you're in video game development in the 90s, It was a a fantasy dreamscape of a life, right? You, you know, you, you, you got up in the morning, you couldn't wait to get out of bed. You couldn't wait to get to the office and be with your gang and all the people and having a laugh and making products and having a great time. And then you would stay there as long as you could. And then you'd go to the pub afterwards and you'd have a few drinks and then you'd go somewhere and do some stuff. And then you'd go home and you'd sleep for a few hours and then you get up and you'd start all over again. Right. And then you started doing that seven days a week. And it, and it becomes your, 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 your level of attachment to reality becomes stretched quite thin. Does that make sense? Mm. You know, yeah, when, yeah. when they say live in the dream, right, you literally were living the dream. So, you know, you guys are, you're doing these retro podcasts and you're talking to the people who were there and did it. And who were, you know, the people who were in the center of it. But for those of us who did it, we were living a life that was a dream come true, right? We were working on something that we loved. We did it every day. We got to work with like-minded people who were an incredible laugh. We got to go on adventures. We got to do things internationally. It, it, it was just unbelievable, right? It, it was like everything you could ever want. And while you were living in it, you were so busy living in it that you weren't thinking about it. So when that comes to an end and that stops, it's kind of like you you you, you become nostalgic for it, right? You you're like, mm. oh, if only I'd have known how good that was. Because you think that that's your life and this minute now is going to be forever. And this is how you're going to live forever. And it doesn't work out like that. Right. You know, as, as we said, the, the culture changed, the dynamic of the industry changed, the, the the amount of money and pressure changed. It had to become more regulated. It had to become organized. It had to become more of a, a corporate type thing. We use that word and it means a lot of things, but, when you bring that into an independent, off-the-cuff, crazy group of people who are just making stuff that they love that also happens to sell a lot of copies and makes a lot of money, it's kind of a very interesting clash, right? So that, those Halcyon days, and people point to the buyout from Sony, but I think that the roots of that change were already in place because of the success that that original core group was having, right? We The, the byproduct of making something that's fantastic and amazing that you really love is that it goes ahead and then becomes very successful in its own, right? And makes a lot of money and it becomes much bigger. So that brings on more people to help you keep doing what you were doing. But those more people that come in and build up on top of it start to detract from what the original core and heart of it was because, you know, you can't, you can't walk around with your pants off in the office for a laugh, right? You that's it's not going to happen anymore right because you'll get reported and then there's a hr department who'll deal with you right and you're in trouble so you know yeah you can't you can't fart loudly in the middle of the afternoon and get a round of applause from everybody around you because it was hilarious and it was brilliant <laughs> right although i've got to say i still love a, a big fart right it still makes me laugh my ass <laughs> off. So. but that's what i'm true. saying is that the culture changes right you can't do that anymore you can't you know, and, 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 you know, it was, you, we'd call it taking the mickey and, and ribbing people. When, when we were there in the early days and it was core days, it was proper mental abuse. There's no doubt about it, right? People were just <laughs> getting a ton of crap all the time and you had to take it and laugh it off and wait for your turn to give it back to someone else. Or you just didn't belong in that environment, right? So yeah. that kind of stuff all you know, the, the, the fun and the laughter and the, you know, when you wake up in the morning, you were kind of less enthusiastic to rush out to the car and and get there you know yeah. you dawdle a bit and and so but not noticing it you just lose it inch by inch you do, it doesn't change overnight right it changes over a long period of time and the people around you change over a long period of time as well you know people who are young and crazy and mental and stuff they're, they're not that anymore right they're going home at a sensible time and they're getting enough sleep and they're speaking coherently which is quite disturbing sometimes when you see a change like that in people. You guys, I don't know, I don't know if I am dropping, I am dropping jokes to make light of it, but that is what happened, right? It, <laughs> yeah. it, it, hmm. it, it went from something unique and crystallized and special that just kept getting better and better and better to one day, and and the units were being shifted, the the pallets were being filled, the trucks were coming. And I think the the pressure of that grew. The, the The marketing department got bigger. The publishing department got bigger. the The, the PR department got bigger. The interviews got bigger. It, it it wasn't specialist hobby magazines anymore. It was you know mm. nationwide TV, right? International press. Yeah. I mean, it was it was huge, right? It got it got huge. I did I did so many interviews and articles for, for Japanese TV. One time they put me at the the, the dumper event before a Formula One. And, like, they were pushing me out on stage because I had to make a speech about, like, the Formula One game we were making and stuff. And I had a translator, of course, uh, who who was doing the translator for me. He was standing there waiting for me. And then just before I went on, was it, was it Andy House? I think it was Andy House after the events He went on to be president worldwide, right? Andy just looks at me and he goes, you do know there's 11 million people watching this right now. I was like, oh, what a thing to say, right? (laughs) A minute before you step out. Tell me afterwards, not now. Oh, man. (laughs) So like, I'm like, don't think about it. Don't think about it. Don't think about it. But of course, that's all you can think about, right? So I'm standing up there with the microphone. My my sphincter had tightened so badly that I don't think I went to the toilet for (laughs) three days afterwards. But but anyway, we, we got through it. It was good, right? But that's the kind of thing that, you know, you're not. You're not ready for that. You're not used to it. And it, it creeps up on you. You know, you're just like, okay, mm. yeah, it's just another thing, but it's not just another thing. So I think for me, you know, the, the the years were still good, right? You know, where we got through 95, 96, you know, launch team for the PlayStation, acquisition, moving up, going to, you know, the, the, the plate was getting fuller. I was still doing the whole Japanese side of things. I was still doing all the Japan trips and all the press and all the TV because nobody else was doing it, right? But I was, now I was flying out guys from the development group right i was flying out the wipeout team i was flying out the formula one team and they were you know they were traveling from from london to tokyo and you know being walked around akihabara and then being interviewed in tv studios and by huge magazines right and and they were just blown away by it right they were and for me i was like what's your problem what's wrong with you guys right just speak up and tell them how you made the game what's your problem and i'm like oh And I think about it now and I'm like, well, yeah, that was normal for me, but (laughs) if you rip a programmer who's stuck in a back room in in Wavertree and stick him on a plane and then put him in the middle of Tokyo, walk him through Akihabara and then stick a camera in his face, that's going to freak him out a little bit, right? Um, That's a culture shock, yeah. yeah. Oh, huge, just huge, right? But, (laughs) you know, if you're busy working and making it happen and you're behind the scenes, you don't think about that stuff, right? You just get on with it, right? And I, I had so many people who helped me in Japan that it wasn't, difficult or problematic for me because I knew everyone around me right but for those mm. guys I was like oh mm. my goodness and some of them you'll interview they'll, they'll just be like yep we went it was amazing it was incredible but it was terrifying right and they were just glad to get back on the plane and get out of there right so I think that was like <laughs> that was part of that cultural shift and our cultural change as well and so but but it was still exciting it was still fabulous and then I started having a personal life I got involved with somebody who I really cared about and I, I really loved and um, I didn't want to go out to the pub after work. I didn't want to do a three week trip to Tokyo, and I didn't want to be in the studios in LA uh, for, for for months on end. You know, I, I was kind of like, okay, I, I really want to be here. I want to be at home, and I, and I think that that was you know it was coming at a time when everything was shifting and everything was changing, and then it just became. A job right it was it was difficult I was doing the I was doing more you know board meetings and um, presentations than I was working with the development guys and working on the products right and then you know I'd see them I still had I still had my own like development team under my wing at that time right you know the, the guys who did colony war and stuff they were still on my side of the building and not classed as internal development they were you know separate right I think we talked about that last time didn't we though when I rescued the yeah, yeah, they were the bad news bears, right? They were like the reject team who, who couldn't enmesh themselves with the corporate culture that we just talked about before, right? They they were the ones who, if we didn't create that special playground project, we would have walked away. And then it goes and produces Colony Wars and smashes like all the. Number. And I mean, that's I, it did okay in Europe, but that game is legendary here in the states, which is really amazing, right? Everybody here in the states knows Colony Wars, right? They mm. and I'm always mm. shocked. I'm always like how the hell, right? How do you know? And they're like, oh no man, it was awesome. It was awesome. We all played it, right? They're like, okay, well you didn't buy it then. You obviously stole it or borrowed it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: you saw the sales figures, Absolutely. Yeah. I'm like, something doesn't add up here, right?
3: But it was, I think it was because it was recognized as like one of those iconic moving the, moving the goalposts forward on a platform, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's what those guys did, but they had to be protected from that corporate culture. So, the grind just became so much. And then I was I was doing so much as well, right? I was the sheer volume of work that I was getting through, it was exhausting me, right? You know, I, I was like I weighed like 150 pounds, right? And I'm five foot eleven. I was like, you know, I'm all over the place, right? I was like super skinny. I was just living on my nerves. I was smoking forty a day, right? And I'm like, <laughs> This isn't good, right? This is not good, right? It's gotta give, it's gotta stop. So and, and, and I was happier doing other things, right? You know, the, the team were not, the teams, i got to say plural now, were not as happy as they used to be. Everyone was still friendly with each other. Everyone still loved each other. Everyone was still great with each other, right? But you didn't get to see everybody as regularly and people had different lives and weren't as involved with each other. And so the fabric of that started to deteriorate. And I think the the drive to keep you going you know deteriorates with it
0: you do kind of sum it up really well there though i think you know it's, it's not only did the company change but you changed as a person as well you know?
3: uh, yeah 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 you, and you, and everybody yeah, so. everybody around us so all these yeah. you know people that we're talking about who are top stars you know i mean even gibson right at his age right and he was already in a rocking chair with val dunican records <laughs> but he was even he was like you know even he was was seeing the cultural shift and the cultural change right and and John would be, you know, he was in my group. He was part of the Colony Wars team and he was with us together. And he was kind of like the educator for the younger programmers. But but John was like, this is not what I signed up for, right? If this team now here gets disbanded, I'm not going to join another team. I'm just going to go. I'm going to go join an indie group. I'm going to do some more. And he was making so much money, right? And he's like, I don't care about the money, right? It's about about the product, mm. about being happy. Mm. Sony, by this time, it had its own internal development studios. And Cygnosis was kind of like the... the the ginger stepchild of the outfit, we were getting less and less information and more and more shunted out. And you you could see it, you could feel it. Right. And so it became, it became a fight rather than a cruise Uh, and keep cruising Mm -hmm. up. It was a fight to go up. Right. And so I was looking at it and I'm like, you know, I'm not sure about this. So uh, in a a cruel twist of irony, uh, January, 1999, uh, my wife became my wife we went to Las Vegas to get married. She's a, she's a California girl. She's from the States and uh, the, the, the wonderful Cassandra. And uh, she's originally from Seal Beach in California. So uh, a lot of her family wanted to come. A lot of my family wanted to come and a lot of our friends wanted to come. So the easiest thing to do was to get married in Vegas, right? Because it's easy to get to everyone can get a package holiday. They can make a holiday of it. It'll be great. Everyone will enjoy it. Right. So we got married uh, January 16th, 1999 in Vegas in a proper church with a stained glass window and a proper priest or vicar or minister. Sorry. And it was like, it was proper. She had a bag, we had a bagpipe guy walking in front of the cast, walking down the aisle, not a dry eye in the house. And the luminaries from the games business that were there would blow your mind. Right. It was just a, you know, today it's a who's who of, uh, of VPs and CEOs and executive VPs. Uh, but, but we were there, you know, we had 120 guests celebrating with us. Uh, we came back, like it was back into work and back into going and back into going. And, and then that's when they decided, okay, it needs to be reshaped. It needs to be changed. Chris Dearin was head of SCEE and uh, Juan Montez was head of development. And Juan uh, came to me and had a plan. Juan uh, had a plan. Uh, and and, <laughs> and uh, I did not agree with that plan. I, I absolutely did not agree with it. It, it was cutting huge sways out of what I did. It was undermining a lot of stuff that I did. And it was getting rid of a lot of people who worked really hard and did really well and didn't, didn't deserve that, right? Um, and so we were at loggerheads and we were fighting over it. And he was like, we're gonna resize. It has to be done. These are the numbers. The numbers don't care. And the history and all the people doesn't matter because the game has changed and we have to launch a new platform and this is how it's going to be. So either you're in and you do it or you're out and you don't. So I chose out and don't, you know, my, my, my passion for product, my passion for games and, and, and and what I did, I kind of needed to find that again. Right. I I wasn't ready to wear the three piece suit and, 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 and sit in the limo and stay in the five star hotel and fly first class I'm an idiot. I'm an absolute idiot, right? What was
0: <laughs> so
3: so, so that was what, I, what was happening. It was like exit stage left. It was over. It was done. It was time to move. And then uh, a very good friend of mine, a very close friend of mine, Dave Anthony, who, who's, who went on to be uh, the, the, the head of uh, development for Treyarch and, and all the Call of Duty games and everything. Um, I'd brought him in. We talked in the last episode. Uh, I, I, I captured him because he was the one who was into the demo scene and I got him to make Theater of Death for me. And uh, he approached me, and his brother, who used to work for me, and John Gibson uh, were all working for this new outfit in, uh, in, in Cheadle, uh, in, close to Manchester. And uh, they were like, okay, well, we know you're fed up there. And these guys, you know, they're, they're really good and they're really talented. And they want to build and grow uh, like Cygnosis did. And you're the perfect man for it, so why don't you come down? So I went and I met the CEO Ashley, and I really liked him. He was a great guy. and I liked the team and they were in this the oldest building in Cheedar, which is like this like barn, <laughs> this old barn from the 17th century, right? And I was like, oh, this is kind of quirky man, look at this, right? And like you know some really great people were there. Nick El was there, uh, Paul Hughes was there. A lot of the old ocean lags were there, so all the, all the guys I knew from ocean. Three years later, we were at 450 people and took it public on the AIM. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) So then I became a commercial director of a PLC, which I found out was really as dull as it sounds. (laughs) So, I mean, like the Warthog years, we can talk about that. I guess we'd have to talk about that another time, but I don't know. Well, that is still, that's retro now as well, right? So, um, but it was fantastic. It was amazing, right? And And I got to do it again, right? I got to build it again, be part of it again, bring the games in, bring the products in, bring the licenses in everything that happened, good and bad, everything that happened, you know, high and low, it it was all brilliant. Right. It was all part of a story. It was all part of a journey and and I'm really pleased and I'm really happy. And and I've got lifelong friends from it. Right. So, you know, sometimes you have to check in with them and say, was that real? And they're like, yep, that was real. And you were like, whoa, okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it was, it was fabulous. It was amazing. It was, it was a, like a moment in time in history in an industry that has just become a world-bestriding giant but was, you know, in its infancy and innocence and and the, the, the evolution of that was that kind of, that whole Psygnosis encapsulation.